This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, we have an extra special guest, Sadia Modsberg, Director of Innovation and Managing Partner at the Rockefeller Foundation, a small $4 billion outfit dedicating itself to the betterment of mankind. How's that for a uh, broad subject? Anyway, if you're at all interested in philanthropy or how foundations operate and what it's like to have to think about giving away hundreds of millions of dollars a year, I expect you will find this conversation to be quite fascinating. The Rockefeller Foundation takes a decidedly uh, off-center approach. As the expression goes, they are not looking to give a man a fish as much as they are looking to find the economic choke point that is leading to whatever distress any given region is suffering and find ways to fix that on a permanent basis to so-called teach the person to fish. Uh, They've spent a lot of time thinking about things like resilience and how cities and regions can develop resiliency to ongoing threats, be they economic terrorist or even just threats uh, um, caused by the weather like Superstorm Sandy or Katrina. All told, I found this to be quite a fascinating conversation. And if you are at all interested in all things philanthropy, I think you'll similarly find it interesting. With no further ado, here is my conversation with Sadia Modsberg. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Sadia Modsberg. She is the managing director at the Rockefeller Foundation, which has about $4 billion in assets. She joined the foundation in 2013 and leads the foundation work on innovation. Previously, she was senior vice president for strategic planning at the New York City Economic Development Corp. She spent six years at McKinsey and four years at Cisco, has a master's in science in applied economics from Copenhagen Business School, as well as an undergraduate degree in international business. Sadia Modsberg, welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you, Barry. I'm delighted to be here. Uh, And it's a pleasure to have you. So let's spend a little bit of time on your background before we delve into the details of, of what the foundation does. How do you go from being a consultant at McKinsey and working on telecom technology at Cisco to to work in in a foundation? How does that transition take place? So if you had asked me, you know, 20 odd years ago, whether I think I'd be sitting in the position I'm in now, the answer would probably be no, because it hasn't been an intentional career choice that I made from the very beginning. Um, I've always followed my intuition and my feeling in terms of what I need to be doing and where I need to be doing that. So that is what took me from consulting to the world of tech to public um, sector in terms of New York City and now here at Philanthropy. But, But as I do reflect back at all of this, I do think that the experiences I've gathered along the way put me in a better position to be doing the job I'm doing today. So. So obviously with an entity like McKinsey, which is known as a consultant to all different manners of of organizations and businesses, um, there's clearly an overlap. But technology telecom, how does that translate into heading up the innovation project at Rockefeller? So technology, I would say, I mean, always, but a lot recently as well, is playing a critical role in terms of how society is developing, how the basic fundamentals of, you know, the job market are being shaped, uh, what has happened, where growth is coming from, how we interact with each other, how we work with each other. Uh, The work that I did at Cisco was very much about that. It was about understanding what is the fundamental role that technology plays in our lives at work and outside of work, and how can we use technology to address some of the fundamental challenges and opportunities, because it's not all about challenges as we go along. So let's talk about some of those challenges and some of those opportunities. Uh, I want to reference something you had blogged about for uh, the foundation, the innovative finance revolution. What is that? And what does the foundation do with that? 
So before I get to describing the revolution, maybe I can describe the challenge that that revolution attempts to address. So uh, 2015, I think, was a landmark year in in many different ways. But there were two particular things that we saw happen that year. One was that the world came together to um, agree on what we call the Sustainable Development Goals, Mm -hmm. which are 17 very lofty goals about how we want the world, what we want the world to look like by 2030. At the same time, we also had the Paris Climate Agreement Mm -hmm. that, you know, most countries around the world came together and agreed on and has been ratified by, you know, a a significant number of them. I think there's one large country that hasn't gotten around to signing off on that. Right. And we can we can get to what that actually means in practical terms. But both of those agreements kind of brought to the forefront the big question of how are we going to pay for all of this? How mm-hmm. are we going to pay for these sustainable development goals? And this isn't just about developing countries. It's about U.S., Europe, you know, the entire world. And how are we going to pay for all the climate related efforts that we want to do? And that is where innovative finance comes in. And, and just to put a few numbers on, on the table as well, please. it's estimated that for the sustainable development goals, they're going to cost around 50 to 70 trillion over the next decade. Trillion with a T. Trillion with a capital T. Uh, that's a lot of zeros. Yes. And there are also some, you know, and, and these are high level estimates. So when you dig down, I'm sure you can refine it along the way. But there are also estimates done that there's a massive funding gap in terms of how we're going to get there. And that takes into account the money philanthropy has, the money the private sector has. So if we're talking about, and there's just another number for, to put it in context, a gap of roughly 2.5 trillion per year mm-hmm. in developing countries alone. So that doesn't even include where we are sitting right wow. now. So we have to think innovatively. We have to think about alternative solutions. And we at the Rockefeller Foundation think that innovative finance is a big part of the answer. So how does that manifest itself? What does innovative finance do to help fund projects like smart power for rural development? So innovative finance represents a pretty expansive set of financing mechanisms that in one way or another are designed to either attract more money to Mm -hmm. development goals and and different programs and initiatives, or to take the money that's already in place and the new money that's coming in and make sure that it's more effectively deployed. Because I talked about the massive funding gap. That gap is there and we need to focus on it. But at the same time, we also need to make sure that the way money is delivered is done in a more predictable way, in a more sustainable way. Because if people, you know, are working in this space, you have to know what's going to happen next year in terms of whether you're going to have the money or not. So you're really referring to philanthropic efficiency, making sure that the money that is allocated is used appropriately and effectively for whatever the I goals would say are. Not just philanthropic funding, also what comes from the private sector, mm-hmm. also what comes from the public sector. So pretty, pretty broad. And and you know, just to put context to what kind of financing mechanisms we're talking about, it's everything from insurance linked securities to pay for performance debt structures to even micro taxes. Hmm. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Sadia Modsberg. She is the Director of Innovation at the Rockefeller Foundation. And and let's talk a little bit about the foundation's mission. I'm going to quote right off of the website, to improve the well-being of humanity around the world. That's a little broad. What what does it really mean in, in actuality, improving the well-being of humanity? It is indeed quite broad. And every time I say it, I almost kind of need to stop, take a breath, let it sink in and then, you know, talk about what that actually means. So the Rockefeller Foundation has been around for roughly 104 years. The year I joined, we were celebrating our centennial. So the the fact that we had been around for 100 years and we reflected back on what we had achieved in those 100 years and, and what it had meant. We have always stayed true to the mission, which is to promote the well-being of humanity. But what that means at any given point in time, of course, has shifted Mm -hmm. over the years. And it's shifted based on what we think the big challenges of our times have been and where we think that philanthropy has an important role to play in terms of stepping in, trying out new solutions, proving how they work 
and then letting others step in and, and drive those forward. I, I would say, though, the, the three things that have remained the same over the 104 years. One is our focus on innovation, so mm -hmm. really driving towards new thinking and new solutions. The second is more, you know, and, and it's something if you read some of the letters written by John D. Rockefeller in the early days, it, it comes out, is this idea of scientific philanthropy. Meaning it, what? It, what it's is about that? trying to really understand what the core underlying drivers behind the challenge are. So instead of just throwing money at something mm -hmm. and say, here's money, you know, let's go alleviate the pain and suffering here. It's about really understanding what the fundamental issue is. So when, you, then, say, when you say scientific philo um, philanthropy, philanthropy, you mean sort of a scientific methodology using an evidence-based approach yes. to say, hey, these dollars are actually having resonance and having an effect. These not so much, let's focus on what's working. Both that, but also to use the data and to use the research to understand what the problem really is, where the problem really comes from. So when you're trying to figure out what the answer to that problem is, you're actually addressing the root causes of it as opposed to just, you know, what comes to the surface. So it sounds like it's somewhat process oriented. Don't just identify a problem, find that fulcrum point. That's the key to the problem. Right. That sounds quite fascinating. I assume you're a, a 5% foundation, meaning each year you give away 5% of, of the $4 billion or so, um, and your, your portfolio offsets those, that, that donation. How do you prioritize where to focus your efforts? Again, improving humanity, uh, improving the well-being of humanity, a giant charge, a giant right. mission, yes. how do you drill down and say, we want to focus on these areas and within these areas, right. this is the specific um, issue we want to attack? So as I mentioned, we try to you know really understand what we think the big challenges of our times are and based on that, set our strategy at any given point in time. That's the responsibility that the senior leadership team carries. That's the responsibilities that our trustees carry as well. If we look at where we are at this point in time and where we are focused, we have two overarching goals, as we call them. One is around resilience building. The other one is advancing inclusive economies. And within that, there are four what we call issue areas mm -hmm. um, that we focus on. There's advanced health, revalue ecosystems, transform cities, and secure livelihoods. Now, now having just said what these issue areas still are. Still broad issues. Still Tremendous. broad issues. So that brings us back to how do you operationalize it on a day-to-day -day basis? Mm -hmm. How do you actually try to understand what's happening in those spaces? Mm -hmm. We have a strategic insights team that continuously monitors what's happening in those spaces and shapes different suggestions for areas where we could engage. And then we take those areas and have a conversation around, you know, how pressing is the problem? And and I'll be honest, in most cases, when you look at it, nobody can come and argue the problem isn't pressing. There, right. there are terrible things happening around the world, you know, in our backyard and across the ocean as well. So it, it's about that. But then it's also about what we like to call looking at dynamism mm -hmm. and potential for innovation. So with dynamism, what I mean is, is there something happening at this point in time that makes it the right time for us as a foundation to go in and engage? Is it on the policy side? Is there developments in the private sector that we should be looking at and focused on? Is it something in civic society? Something that gives an indication there's a momentum that we can build on and accelerate. And then, of course, there's the impact at scale. We're here. I mean, philanthropy is here to serve poor and vulnerable people around the world. That is our role. That is what we're focused on. So at the end of it, it, it comes down to our ability to have impact. So we're going to talk more about resilience in, uh, in a few minutes. Let's talk a little bit about um, the day-to-day -day and, and the prioritization. Do you look for low-hanging fruit, as the expression uh, suggest where, where there's an immediate impact or are there occasional moonshots that, hey, we don't know if this is going to be successful, but if it works, the impact is tremendous. So it's or a, both. It's, it's, that's what I was going to say. It's a fine balance mm -hmm. and it's both. And again, when our mission is so broad, our areas are so broad, if we're really doing our job well, we can't be going to the obvious solutions mm -hmm. and funding the obvious things. But sometimes you need to do that too. Um, 
I mean, we think of our money as America's risk capital, where mm. we can deploy it in ways where the private sector wouldn't be able to because they maybe don't want to take on the risk. Mm -hmm. uh, the public sector, again, may not be able to because either they don't have the resources available or they don't have the ability to take that risk. So we have a big responsibility in terms of what we do with that really precious privileged capital in terms of driving towards new solutions. I mean, and, and you talk about moonshots. The, you can look at it in, in many different ways. We, we talked about innovative finance earlier. And one of the portfolios that, that I oversee at the foundation is called Zero Gap, and it is focused on the financing mechanisms and, and closing the funding gap. Within that, right now, we're funding something called outbreak and epidemic insurance. Mm -hmm. Now, 10 years ago, if you went to anybody in the insurance industry and said, you know, public health, you know, there's a massive lack for funding. There are all these public health emergencies that come up time and time again. We don't have a good system in place to fund it. How about insurance? Many of them would probably, you know, have rolled their eyes and say, <laughs> yes, that's great. We run this business, you know, based on these things. And, you know, good luck fiddling with that over in, in the philanthropic sector. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Sadia Modsberg. She is the managing director of the Rockefeller Foundation, focusing on the foundation's work on innovation. So let's talk a little bit about resilience as a public policy. Here in, here in New York City and the surrounding region, uh, the, the superstorm Sandy was a giant mess. It caused all sorts of problems in, in some ways outside of Katrina. It was the most expensive um, storm, certainly on the East Coast. What can we as a city and a region do to become more resilient? So I was working for New York City at the time Superstorm Sandy hit. And you're right. It was a massive disaster. It was a mess. It cost the local economies of the states that were hit by it a lot. The small and medium-sized businesses were shut down for a while. The public infrastructure broke down, whether you're talking about subways or telecommunications infrastructure. Um, electrical you know, was... Electrical. Uh, I live in the suburbs. We had yeah. no electricity for 12 days. If you would have asked me beforehand, yeah. hey, what are the odds that a storm is going to knock out electricity for two weeks? I would say, this is America. That shouldn't happen. Yeah, yet. exactly. I mean, I, I was living downtown Manhattan and, and, you know, I had to relocate to Midtown. That was the extent of, you know, the suffering I, I went through. But but no, it, it was a big shock to the system. Mm -hmm. And that really does bring forward the, this whole concept of resilience and what should we do, not just at a city level and a state level, but for countries and regions as well. At the Rockefeller Foundation, we talk about resilience as the capacity of individuals, communities, societies to withstand shocks when they happen and then bounce back from them mm -hmm. faster as well. So it's, it's not about trying to stop the disasters from happening. It's saying, how do you put in place the systems, the solutions, the policies that will allow you to bounce back faster? Now, have we done that? Because I know in the world of finance, we are notorious for experiencing something terrible yep. and then forgetting about it as soon as possible. Have we forgotten about Superstorm Sandy or Katrina, or have we taken steps to become more resilient as a, as a geography? So I think in, in the public realm, um, there is this very broad understanding that you cannot just forget and pretend that it didn't happen. It's happening time and time again in mm -hmm. different parts of this country and different parts of the world. So there is a very strong momentum and focus on saying, you know, let's let's get to the solutions. Part of it is also breaking away from the silos that we operate in. Don't think about, you know, this is this has to do about education. This has to do with infrastructure. This has to do with, you know, something else, you have to sometimes cut across the silos and say, what are the right solutions you put in place? And I mean, I, I'd like to give an example again from our innovative finance portfolio of something we are funding currently, which people would not normally associate with a resilience effort. And it has to do with natural infrastructure. So by natural infrastructure, I mean oyster reefs, I mean coral reefs and, you know, marshlands and, and coastal wetlands. 
they protect a natural barrier when it comes to storms. Mm -hmm. You know, they have done it time and time again. There's science out there that shows that, you know, a healthy coral leaf can absorb around 97% of the energy of a wave. That is massive. So you don't even have to go think, you know, let's build a massive seawall or any, you know, thing equivalent to that. How do you put in place mechanisms that can allow you to protect the natural environment we have today that is protecting us. So so we're funding and we're working currently with the Nature Conservancy and they're partnering with Swiss mm-hmm. Re on it is to say, um, there's the Mesoamerican Reef. It's the second largest reef in the world. It protects a lot of the local economy when it comes to the Mex- Mexican tourism mm-hmm. system. Can you gather the hotel association and the local businesses that benefit from having a healthy reef get them to pay into a fund that invests in the uh, maintenance of the reef, but also buys catastrophe insurance on it. Mm -hmm. So when something terrible happens, one, insurance pays out immediately. So you have the money in hand. Rebuild right away. Because you have to. And I I didn't understand, you know, the complexity of it, but a lot of it is picking it up at the right time and reattaching it so it can continue to grow. You you know, you can't come back in a month, two months, three months and do it. Because then you're vulnerable to the the next uh, storm. You know, there are some little things I was, I think a lot of people were shocked about with Sandy, and we haven't even gotten to Katrina, shocked to learn that emergency generators Mm -hmm. are located in the basements of buildings, which assumes there's no flooding. I stop and think about this was done 20, 30 years ago. People weren't really conceptualizing a wave coming over Manhattan, going down into the subway, right. going down into the basements of buildings, yeah. and basically rendering those emergency generators um, unusable. But what you're talking about with reef building and oyster bed promotion, these are giant macro projects that are far beyond any one business, probably any one um, city or, or municipality. It has to be part of a broader effort. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Sadia Modsberg. She is the Director of Innovation at the Rockefeller Foundation, whose mission is to improve the well-being of humanity around the world. So let's get into the nitty-gritty of that. Uh, I'm ballpark the foundation's about... $4 billion? Is that a, a fair number? Slight, slightly more than that. Slightly more than that. Um, how does the foundation manage its money? Is, do they use in-house managers? Do they use out, outside managers? they use both? So we have our investment office that is led by our chief investment officer, Donna Dean. She's a brilliant, very, very smart woman uh, who's been taking care of the money for us so that the rest of us on the program side have money to spend. On, uh, on fulfilling our mission. Uh, it is managed externally. Uh, we have our team internally that sets, you know, uh, goals and along with the, with mm-hmm. our board and, and agrees on which direction we want to be going in. And then they look for the right opportunities externally. So you, you target 5% a year to give out. That's everybody that's a, a tax exempt foundation uses, uses that money. How are priorities set? Is it long-term thinking and it's mapped out over years or do you have the ability we referenced Ebola earlier do you have the ability to pivot when an emergency such as that pops up so we try to do both because we have to be invested in areas for the long term you you can't come up with solutions you know in the short term and say you know we solve for it let's go on the next uh, on to the next one so we have some of it dedicated towards our longer term initiatives and programs. One mm-hmm. example of that is what we call YieldWise. It's focused on reducing post-harvest loss in agricultural food chain in um, Africa. It's something we Yield launched. Yield loss. YieldWise. So Yield uh, Yes. Yeah, so it's focused on reducing post-harvest loss. Mm-hmm. So from the time a smallholder farmer harvests it, Till the time it gets to a market where you can sell sell it, there is a big loss that happens in there. Meaning um, just natural uh, attrition, rot, or what? What is it that yeah, causes that? It's a that? combination of that. So. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the uh, crops that we're looking at is is called cassava. Mm-hmm. It's something that you have to get to the market quickly, quickly and processed very quickly. It's a melon and it's um, a decent size. And so I, you know, for me, it's more about 
how do you one link it to the local markets uh-huh. in a more efficient way quickly and sometimes technology plays a role sure or processing close to where you're harvesting plays a role uh sometimes it's about having in place agreements when it comes to bulk purchase with big you know mm-hmm. food chains uh where you know there's somebody there to take it off your hands and and know what to do with it um so it's a m- number of different things that come into play in terms of how you can work towards reducing uh food loss yeah so when i when i'm i'm listening to the maintaining the yield and and dealing with the loss that sounds like you're trying to attack two things one is poverty in the third world by by allowing farmers to generate a better economic return, but that also applies towards food scarcity and, and starvation. If you're getting mm-hmm. a, a better yield and you have less loss, that just means there's that much more food around. Right. I mean, it, it has to do with food security, mm-hmm. definitely. Um, and actually, I mean, what I didn't mention was the efforts that we're doing here in the U.S., um, within that initiative aren't focused on reducing harvest loss, but it's about consumer waste. There is a lot of food that, you know, comes into grocery stores, sure. comes into your fridge, my fridge, that never gets consumed, that we end up throwing out. So, again, more to say, we look at what the challenges were and then figure out what we think the appropriate response would be. So let's let's talk about that because I know I'm the person who takes the garbage out in the house. And- right. My wife is always, wait a second, and going through the fridge and tossing out whatever is turned or the tomatoes. that are. So what can you do in the United States to reduce? And it's the, if memory serves, it's massive. It's like 50% of the farmed food is wasted. Is that a, is that a fair number? So I, I don't know the exact percentage, but it is a really, really Giant. significant amount. Yes. Uh, so we're in the process of deciding where to go with it. Part of it has to do with creating alternative markets, right? Mm-hmm. What is waste to you may not be waste to somebody else. Um, I don't know how things were when you were growing up in your house and, and what kind of food culture there was around it. But in the old days, you used to take a lot of the things that you would consider close to expiration and you would make stock out of right. it, right? And you would make cook stock it and, and it's good. cook it, right? And you could put it in the freezer. It tastes delicious. You can use it, you know, for time and time again. Mm-hmm. But the, and, and then you can, you know, do other things. You can donate it to local organizations that try to bring food to people that don't currently have food. So part of it is behavioral. Part of it has to do with the market dynamics. And I think mm-hmm. you have to work on both hand in I, hand. I recall reading not too long ago about the market for, quote unquote, ugly, ugly food. Fruit, yes. Which I, I find fascinating that, hey, this tomato is ugly. This apple isn't right. pretty. But it's perfectly edible. Yeah. And there are people who are more than happy to buy it at a substantial discount. Right. And that's an economic solution to... To one possible. I mean, problem. not just that, Barry. If you go to any of the farmers markets around here, so I live close to Union Square, and I, used to I go live right there, over there, right? So I go there often, and the food isn't set up to look beautiful and well shaped in the same proportions and the same sizes and all that. That is just nature. That's you know. That's part of the charm of yeah. of the farmers market. This isn't factory farmed. Every tomato is perfectly red, perfectly round. Everything looks right. like it was recently grown without a lot of uh, chemicals. Yep. I th- always thought that was half the appeal. So we're, we're talking about some of the things that money can do. What are some of the things that money can't do or at least can't do by itself? Meaning, how do you decide, oh, we can only go so far with this project and there needs to be a lot more education and a lot more persuasion of people before they recognize and fund uh, a, a project, if that makes any sense. You know, it does. Um, I think the most stark example of what money can't fix or philanthropy can't fix today is the Syrian crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at it, it's a crisis that started as, you know, small protests escalated into a full-blown um, civil war now you're or a conflict. And now you're at a point where, you know, there, there is a ceasefire. But the, I've, I've read one of the um, headlines in New York Times saying, you know, the parties were quarreling about how to move forward. Mm-hmm. In the span of those five years, you have a quarter of a million people that have died. You have Amazing. 11 million people 
that have been displaced from their homes. Some of them within Syria, but a significant amount of them left Syria as well. Stayed, went to neighboring countries. Jordan, Jordan. Of, I, 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 I was in Jordan recently, and it's amazing what capacity that country has had to take in refugees mm -hmm. time and time again and de the, uh, treat them with decency and dignity. But Lebanon is an example. Jordan is an example. There are even refugees going to Iraq. I mean, who would have thought that, you know, somebody would want to go to Iraq as a refugee to get away from what's bad. And then I got, you know, Turkey. And then I started getting closer to my old home, which is Europe. And it, it's been front and center of the policy debate in Europe, in the U.S., in Australia, and, you know, all, all other parts Clearly of the Clearly impacted Brexit, might have had an impact on the election right. here. I, I think people underestimate how significant the issue in Syria was as a global um, uh, affectation. It's right. really driven... Uh, all sorts of issues around the world. So if, if I take that as an example, there's no amount of money that I could have given as a grant that would have fixed the core of that problem. Mm -hmm. Now, there are things that we can do, we should be doing, and we are trying to do around how do you then take the people that are affected by the conflict, the refugees, and try to create more inclusive societies that they mm -hmm. can be a part of to actually you know, allow them to come back into what could be a normal life um, away from what uh, what they left behind. That, that's, quite, that's quite astonishing. So when you pick a specific issue to focus on, uh, obviously one, uh, one question is, can we have an impact? And, and if the issue is perhaps not, we, there's not enough money in the world to resolve this, that, that becomes a, a diplomacy and, and governmental challenge but when you find something that you believe your approach and your um cash can actually impact how do you go about measuring that impact how can you determine how effective a given program is but both when you're evaluating against other programs you're running right or deciding hey we're really seeing resonance here let's put a greater effort into this right or not do, do you manage this like an actual portfolio. So we do have a very strong focus on what we call monitoring, mm -hmm. which is doing it as the program is implemented, and then evaluation, which is the actual outcomes of the program once mm -hmm. it has been Im implemented. One, because we want to make sure that the impact we want to have on the life of poor and vulnerable people is actually achieved. But two, also, so that we can figure out whether the starting point that we had for when we started the program was the right one or whether we need to pivot along the way. We have been speaking with Sadia Modsberg of the Rockefeller Foundation. If you want more information on the foundation, you could go to their website, just Google Rockefeller Foundation or go to Rockefeller, is it RockefellerFoundation.org? Is yes, that right? Yes, yes.org. Um, if you enjoyed this conversation, be sure and stick around for the podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and talk about all things philanthropic. Check out my daily column on BloombergView.com or follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast. I don't know why I do that. I do that every time. <laughs> uh, Sadia, thank you much, uh, so much for doing this. I, I find the topic of how great pools of wealth is subsequently used in, in endowments and foundations for whatever the founding principle um, goal was, even when it's something as broad as making humanity, improving the well-being of humanity, something like that. It's fascinating because you usually don't get to see the nuts and bolts of how that's done. And what I find really interesting about the Rockefeller Foundation, I think people's general sense of foundations are they're throwing money at problems yeah. and... And everything you've described is much more to get biblical, teach a person a fish rather yep. than give them a fish. Right. It's identifying where the problem is and looking for a solution where there's some subsequent ongoing economic incentive to keep the solution going. And that right. that's really quite fascinating to me. Um, I'm a, I imagine your day-to-day -day work must be really interesting. It, it really is, and it keeps me on my tiptoes. So... When I was at the point of deciding whether or not to join, you know, what I would broadly characterize as the social sector, or the development sector, I actually went around and talked to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. 
And I thought, I don't want to just jump the fence because I think it's going to be better on the other side. Let me get a realistic feel for what's happening. And it was an interesting time where, you know, a lot of people said, no, 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 if you really want to make a difference, you know, find one of the smaller startups and go work there. Don't go in philanthropy. They're so set in their ways. And and what have they done? And what I've come to realize and, and really respect about the place that I work and about the field of philanthropy at large is, you know, it's not about hacking, you know, global poverty. You can't right. do that. The problem is that- the There's no prob- silver bullet for there, any There of is things. none of that. And, you know, this idea you can do an app and, you know, everything will be fine. No, you have to have respect for the complexity of the problem. Mm-hmm. And then you have to just go at it. And my days are fascinating. I mean, you can start with talking about infrastructure finance and then, you know, talk about a humanitarian crisis and the refugee crisis. And from there, it'll go on to natural disasters in Africa and how to think about just solutions there. So there's never a dull moment. I, I can imagine. Um, I was going to ask you, we didn't get to, to this question earlier. So, And I don't know if this is the focus of the Rockefeller Foundation, but what can a foundation do about global or domestic inequality? Is that an issue that comes up? So one of our two goals is about advancing inclusive economies. Mm-hmm. So we, we talk about it and think of it as inclusion. Meaning uh, what, that everybody gets to participate in the economic bounty of a given... So, so not just economically, but socially as well, mm-hmm. because you, you can't distinguish one from the other. If you're a member of society, you want people to be integrated on the social side, cultural side, you know, economic side, give mm-hmm. them the same opportunities and treat them as equals. And I think philanthropy has a role to play. Uh, One of the programs, and you mentioned it earlier, that we're funding is Smart Power for Rural Development. Mm -hmm. It is an effort focused on trying out, testing new sustainable business models that drive um, electrification and economic development of rural villages in India. It's about how do you take somebody who's currently completely excluded from mm-hmm. what's happening and try to bring them into the economy, but do it in a way where it's actually sustainable. Really, that that's quite uh, that's quite interesting. A buddy of mine is is working on this project that it's called Helical something. I'm drawing a blank on it. They essentially take what is a a, a rail car or mm-hmm. uh, you know the the standard shipping containers. And they convert it so you could basically airdrop it anywhere. Right. The doors open it up. Solar panels come out to the top. You you purify water. You have a, a satellite uplink for communication. Yeah. You are able to grow all sorts of food stock for for um, cattle and and sheep and everything. And it's the idea is you can instantly in the response of uh, let's say a Katrina or yeah. some other emergency. You could instantly, instant civilization with this one thing. It's really quite that, that, fascinating. That is fascinating. You know, I was recently um, in Denmark and uh, I, I was visiting my dad who spends part of his time in Denmark now, a lot of it in Pakistan. And he was telling me how he has a solar panel installed back home in the village in Pakistan because there's so much load shedding that happens. Right. And I thought, wait, it was like, you just had it installed yourself? And he said, yes. And it's said, a panel. How hard it's is a panel. It it's right. like, I was like, do you have a battery for it? And he looked at me as if I was an idiot. And of course and I he said, of course I have a what, battery. What are you going to do with it? You know, how do you get power at night. I know. uh, It's amazing how this sort of decentralization, remember, when you look at, let's say, telecommunications in a lot of parts of the world, you know, it was a big deal for the United States to wire phones to everybody. And a lot of parts of the world just skipped over that and went right to cellular. I wouldn't be surprised to see something very, very similar happening with electrical distribution. They're going to skip over that centralized authority and say, Hey, it's especially today. Panels are so efficient, so cheap. I mean, they still have a way to go, but they're a tenth of what they were a decade right. ago. I, I think that that you need on grid and off grid solutions sure. to go hand in hand. Absolutely. But 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 I think they have a big role to play. I mean, you, you mentioned decentralization. Another interesting thing that 
we're funding right now is, and it, it, it's very different from electrification, where it goes back to the topic of inclusion, mm-hmm. is the use of blockchain technology mm-hmm. to create economic identities for displaced people. Now, that sounds so. In other words, Syrian refugees, everybody gets a unique identifier. And that blockchain is a way that you can validate who they are. So not just that. And it's more about what it can do for the development organizations, less about what it can do for the development organizations and more about the individual. Mm-hmm. Today, if you're displaced from home, you know, you may have left under god-awful circumstances. You may have some form of identification or not. You end up in a camp. You get a number and that's, quote-unquote, your identity. Wow. But, and then, you know, when you go from one place to another... You may keep it, you may not, you may get a new one. There's probably no record, collective record of what you've done along the way. So what blockchain can allow you to do, and we're still testing it, so so let's see what the results are. It can allow you to record along the way the different interactions you have. So say you're living in Jordan, not in a camp, you know, 90% of the refugees there live outside the camps. You get a cash transfer from UNHCR regularly, Mm -hmm. right? Um, you have a cousin that lives in Europe who sends you money, remittances, on a regular basis. You have some small job that you've taken somewhere, you know, maybe part-time, maybe something. You have money that comes from it. Imagine if you had one place where all those interactions could be recorded. So at some point in time, you want to start your own business and you go to the bank and say, I would like to take out a loan. They wouldn't look at you and say, well, I'm sorry, you are just a person who has no record of showing what your credit worthiness is or isn't. You actually have the ability, yourself as an individual, to choose how much you want to share with the institution and then figure out alternative ways of getting integrated into the new home that you found. That's fascinating. That that may be the best single usage of blockchain (laughs) I've heard to date. That's really quite interesting. So I know I only have you here for another 15, 20 minutes, and I have a bunch of questions I want to uh, I want to go over. Let me just go to one that I know I missed earlier. You, you mentioned uh, about working with the private sector. How do you integrate what you do with both state and federal governments, local and federal governments? Um, other philanthropy, as well as the private sector. How how does that look when a project is moving forward? Right. So as I mentioned earlier, one of the core principles that we've always had is about building relationships and partnerships, because Mm -hmm. we realize that we never alone can come up with with the answer and then drive it forward. Now, that can take many different shapes and forms. Sometimes it is the public sector, either the federal level or state or national, uh, sorry, state or local, uh, that we partner with and then bring in the private sector. And sometimes it may just be with the private sector. I mean, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll give you one example of a place where we, we've collaborated quite well across the board, and it goes back to the to the finance work as well. Um, it's called New York City Housing Acquisition Fund. Mm-hmm. And this was around 10, 10 years ago, more than 10 years now, where we came together with a number of different philanthropies, the city of New York and a number of big banks to create this fund that was targeting um, creating more affordable housing units here in the city. You know what the real estate market here looks like. You know how tough it can be to get loans to to do affordable housing. Sure. Uh, so what we did was so this Battery Park City, along with a number of different foundations, we created a guarantee fund. At the back of that, we attracted around 200 million from big banks. So mm-hmm. you have the likes of JP Morgan, City, uh, uh, Morgan Stanley, uh, many of them or most of them that put money into it. Now, we couldn't have done that alone. The banks wouldn't have ventured into it because they saw it potentially as a risky proposition sure. and the city couldn't have done it alone. And so what did that end up fa- uh, funding? So it, they have to date deployed over 300 million um, mm-hmm. and invested in either the preservation or the creation of more than 10,000 10, affordable housing units here in the city. And that's in ba- down in Battery Park alone no, or all no, over the whole it, city? No, it's, it's all over the city and they continue the work. The huh. fund still exists. That, that's, quite, that's quite fascinating. You know, I wanted to ask you a, a, a question personally. So you're... you're Born in Copenhagen or born in Denmark? Is that right? Yes, correct. And so you you grow up there. You do a semester abroad. 
um, at Boston College and at George Washington for undergraduate and graduate, how challenging was the decision to say, um, I'm going to come work in America? By all the annual um, surveys, right. Denmark is considered one of the happiest countries <laughs> in the world. How do you True. decide to... I mean, do you just not like bicycles? What <laughs> makes you every? That, I've been to Denmark. That, yeah. I've been to Copenhagen twice, and the one thing everybody tells you is, look both ways before I you know. cross the street, or you're going to get run over by I bicycles. Know. And it's so true. It's I've never seen anything. Forget Portland yeah. or Seattle or San Francisco. That is a bicycle city. It sure is, and you know it, it's a dangerous endeavor to drive in the city. Yes, if you're, you know, it's the, the inverse wheel. here, where it's dangerous to bike, and everyone's yeah, exactly. in cars. There, as a as a as a car driver, it's like you're surrounded by bikes. It's yeah. amazing. So, I I mean, you mentioned you know my being born in Denmark. I was uh, both my parents were from Pakistan. They had moved there back in the '60s, and as a result of a lot of different family decisions, I ended up moving and living in Pakistan for a long time as well. So, oh, really? Yes, I did my basic elementary schooling in Pakistan. I lived there for nine years, uh, then moved back to Denmark. Um, Was that culture shock going back and forth like that? So I, I mean, if if you take kind of you know a spectrum, you could put Pakistan at one end and you'd put Denmark at the exact opposite right. end, right? Pakistan is loud, it's colorful, it's messy, it's com- it's completely unorganized, mm-hmm. and then Denmark on the other hand is calm it's you know very black and white and gray and it's it has a you know very different feel to it mm-hmm. i grew up in both worlds mm-hmm. i grew up in both worlds when i was living in denmark i grew up in both worlds when i was living in pakistan and visiting denmark um so for me i don't see the culture shock i can start a thought in my head in danish and finish it in urdu and then say it in english <laughs> that is just how you know my, what my life was lo- like in terms of moving to the U.S., I'd say, yes, I lived in Boston for half a year, and then I mm-hmm. lived in D.C. for a year while I was studying. And then when I was at McKinsey, I did um, I, I moved over to our New Jersey office, lived in New York, but did that for a year. And the U.S., the U.S. East Coast, has uh-huh. always had a, a special place in my heart. So my husband and I, we moved here eight years ago, because we were getting restless in Denmark. I was getting restless in Denmark. Mm-hmm. And New York has always felt like home. Right. A lot of energy, a lot of dynamism, a lot of things going on here. A lot of messiness, lot, yeah. lo- lots of noise. Yes. So it's yes. a little bit of, of all the world. That's exactly. A, that's very interesting. So let's jump to some of my favorite questions. I yep. asked these of all my guests. Um, we talked about what you did before you started working. Um, who are some of started working at, at Rockefeller? Um, who are some of your early mentors? So I, I think it's only now that I've come to think of them as, as my mentors. If you'd asked me this question 20 years ago, I wouldn't have. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of the women in my family. Mm-hmm. I grew up in a very patriarchal society, whether that was in, you know, in our house in Denmark or whether it was in Pakistan. And now, Pakistan, each, I assume, is patriarchal. Denmark also? No. Well, the, a lot of that culture from Pakistan moved over oh, okay. with my family to Denmark. So, so no, not broader Danish society. It's the opposite. Uh, but if you look at it, I've I've drawn inspiration from many that you know found their own way forward. Whether that was my aunt who raised her own kids the way she wanted to after her husband passed away or my mother who was you know a very successful doctor or some of my cousins who broke away from tradition and and did what they wanted to do um which was against expectations on the other side i would also say in the more traditional sense some of the directors that i worked with when i started at mckinsey um Mm -hmm. ages ago one in particular i remember it was one of my first projects i was the junior associate on the team we went in seated there with the ceo and so on and the ceo asked a question and the director turned around and pointed to me and he said well she did the work why don't we just ask her and it Hmm. was just i mean it showed me that it's about your ideas and what you have to offer and not rank, uh, mm-hmm. that matters in world. And he 
showed that by example and he gave me the confidence. Now, if the answer to this question hadn't been good, I'm sure he wouldn't have given me the same opportunity again. Um, but that did set the tone for how I've approached a lot of things in my career since. C- care to share the name? Uh, Michael Helpu. Michael Helpu. Helpu. Yeah. So local Danish person, I'm assuming. Yes. And um, so let's talk a little bit about uh, what people influenced your approach to philanthropy. Who who has affected how you look at the world of affecting change for the betterment of mankind? So this may sound a little bit cliche, but this mm-hmm. was ages ago. I was still in the private sector. I was getting on a plane to go to some client somewhere. And I had a magazine um, that had an interview with Bill Clinton. And mm-hmm. I know it's not the popular thing to say these days and talk about the Clinton Foundation, but it talked about some of the work or it laid out some of the work that they were doing in Africa around medicine for HIV and AIDS. It talked about how they had brought together different players from the private sector to you know, reset the price of those medicines in that part of the world and how they'd done it through something called advanced market commitments. Mm-hmm. And to me, that was completely fascinating that, you know, and I hadn't thought of philanthropy in those terms. I thought about it in the more traditional, you just give money and then you wait for something good to happen. Um, The other person, and this is more around our zero gap and innovative finance work, I met, he used to be the former treasurer of the World Bank. His name is Kenneth Lay. Um, And he was the one who designed the very first green bond. Now, when we talk about green bonds and all the good and bad things that have come with it, you know, it doesn't get associated with a person. But, it, you know, I've had many conversations with him since, and he keeps going at the point, and I completely agree with him, and it's it's influenced my approach as well, which is, you know, take philanthropic funding to create new solutions that are sustainable instead of putting philanthropic funding forward as concessionary capital. Concessionary because, capital. Yeah. That, that's quite interesting. The... um. That that's really quite quite fascinating, and it's so easy to get wrapped up, especially in the last election, with some of the political criticisms of of various foundations. When you look at what the Clinton Foundation itself has actually accomplished, they've performed a lot. Extract the politics. Yeah, they've performed a lot of good, and that gets lost in in the political debate. So I don't I don't think what what you're saying is especially controversial. You just have to sometimes ignore all of the craziness around around US elections that has to so as a someone who spent a lot of time overseas how do you look at US I mean do you I think our elections are insane right I can't imagine someone who didn't grow up here yeah you know you look at the UK their elections are they seem to last a month and a half and yep. it's done this is like a never ending at least for this one was 2 years right does someone who's foreign born but living in New York look at this and say, what are you people doing? This is a giant waste of energy. Um, Barry, you forget that I also grew up in Pakistan. So, so if I take that. <laughs> so an insane electoral so, process but is not. It, Pakistan is in a constant state of elections. Right. I mean, and, you know, till recently, I think we'd had a very long period where none of the elected governments had finished their term before right. there was a new election. How does that compare to the way self-governance takes place in, in Denmark? So Denmark is very... Uh, buttoned up. Mm -hmm. It's very focused from the time you announce an election to the time the election happens. You're talking about weeks. You know, there isn't any of That sounds delightful. (laughs) After this election, especially. Um, Let's talk a little bit about books. People always ask, always say to me, I'm curious as to what favorite books your guests have. Right. So related to philanthropy, finance, fiction, nonfiction, what sort of books do you really enjoy? So... um, I spend a lot of my time reading white papers and, mm-hmm. and research reports. I'll I'm set so those sorry. aside. I know, I know. <laughs> Actually, my, my seven-year-old daughter is really into Harry Potter these uh-huh. days. And, you know, once in a while when she sees me with an actual book, she'll come over and she's like, how long is that book? And I'm like, oh, 350 pages. Like, oh, doesn't matter. I just read 700 pages. You can do this. Oh, so, she's looking down yes. at your oh, yes. 300 I, 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 I get shamed by my daughter. <laughs> but to mention a couple of interesting ones I've, I've read recently, um, there's this fascinating book called Today We Drop Bombs, Tomorrow We Build Bridges. Mm-hmm. And it traces 
kind of the history of what has happened in the humanitarian space um, since the beginning of the Afghan war. Post-war reconstruction. No, not so much about post-war reconstruction. It's about how our humanitarian agenda has been brought closer and closer to our military priorities. Really? So humanitarian organizations have always worked on the principle of neutrality. You know, Uh you go where the need is greatest. You do what's needed to be done. It's not about politics. It's just about helping the people in need. And that's changed. That has changed in many ways. You should read the book. It's a, it's a fascinating recount of a lot the of authors, what authors uh, Peter Gill. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about what happened in Afghanistan, what has you know happened since in other parts of the world as well, where NGOs to a large extent are dependent on funding from big governments. Right. And if the governments want them, you know, to go to certain part of say, a country to perform their work there, sometimes you don't really have an influence over that. So if you look at where the bulk of the foreign aid went in Afghanistan, it went to the places where there was also the biggest military presence. Huh, quite fascinating. So, Give me another book if you have one uh, off the top of your head. I, I just started reading it, Strangers at the Door. Mm-hmm. It is. It looks at the moral crisis brought upon by you know the massive... Uh, refugee crisis. Sure. It kind of argues that you know it's it's a challenge that cuts across borders, and we are all dependent on each other to find the right solutions. So taking a more protectionist approach um, isn't the way forward. I mean, it's, it's, mm, it's that sounds fascinating. Yeah. Any other books? And then I could always recommend some research papers if uh, if you're interested. I'll pass. <laughs> Listen, everybody. I would imagine half the listeners to this spend a lot of time reading and uh, finance and other such um, related papers. And the question that always comes up is, I want to put this aside, give yep. me something, either fiction or nonfiction, biography or something else. I can't tell you how often the question comes up. Um, so those are two good recommendations. We'll, we'll look into that. So since you joined um, the Rockefeller Foundation, how have you seen the industry change? Meaning, how is philanthropy in the midst of adapting to the modern world? So in the last four years, a lot has changed. Mm-hmm. Um, I think more philanthropic money with big names has come in. Mm-hmm. Zuckerberg Chen Initiative is just an example of that. So I guess that's good for the broader field in terms of more people uh, focusing on the things that, that we focus on. Um, I think there's been a clear recognition of the role of private sector in mm-hmm. getting to solutions. And I think the work around climate change and the involvement of the business community in that largely speaks to it. I think there's also been more of a recognition of the interdependence and problems cutting across boundaries than before. I think climate change, again, is part of it. You you can't, as one country, just solve it. You're dependent on every other you know country around you. Uh, global migration is another example of that. Mm-hmm. And then the big backlash against globalization that has come to the forefront is affecting a lot of the What about big data? Is big data impacting philanthropy the way it is impacting the private sector? So it is, and we do try to build solutions around it. Uh, But it's, it's again, about having context for that data, understanding what it means and what you need to do instead of blindly following it. So I'm down to my last two and very favorite questions. Right. So if a millennial came to you, someone who just graduated college and said, I'm interested in a career in philanthropy, what sort of advice would you give them? I would say one thing, which is have respect for the problems. Mm -hmm. It's something that we were talking about earlier. These are complex, messy problems. You have to have respect for them. You have to really understand them before you start jumping to solutions. Mm -hmm. There are no quick fixes around here, you you know. Uh, The other thing I would say is you better buck up because you're going to get knocked down many, many, many times. And that is part of working in this space. You try many things before you get to the one that really works. So be willing, able to just jump in there and and keep going at it. So you, you have to be resilient. In yes, words. yes, very Absolutely. much. So thank you for that plug. And, and our last uh, question, what is it that you know about the world of philanthropy today that you wish you knew 10 plus years ago when you started? I wish I knew how hard it would be to give away money. 
Really? It is really, really difficult. So with all the other jobs I had before coming here, mm-hmm. including city government, it was about, you know, I have this idea and I, where do I get the money from and what do I do? And then with this job, I was like, this is brilliant. Now I'm the one who has the money and I get to have the conversations about where to give the ideas. It is so difficult because at the core of it, our responsibility is to poor and vulnerable people. Mm-hmm. It's precious dollars. It cannot be squandered. And even though when we take risks, they're calculated risks. I'll, I'll end with one thing. So David Rockefeller Jr. used to be on our board. He mm-hmm. just retired last year after his term was up. And he's a lovely man, very passionate. Every time we had our board meetings, you know, and got a chance to meet him, he would say, what are you working on right now that excites you the most? Mm-hmm. I remember the first time he asked me the question, you know, I had a slight moment of panic. And I was like, if I can't with conviction give him an answer, you know, about to to that question, then I don't deserve to be in this role because it was, you know, his family that started it all. It's because of him that we're doing what we're doing and I better do a good job. (laughs) Well, that sounds quite fascinating. We have been speaking with Sadia Modsberg of the Rockefeller Foundation If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, and you could see any of the 115 or so such conversations we have had previously. Uh, Be sure and share your comments, feedbacks, and suggestions with us. Write to, I'm going to do that again because I just totally uh, tripped on my own tongue. Be sure and send us your comments, feedback, and suggestions, that's the proper use of the plural words, write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I would be remiss if I did not thank Medina, our uh, recording engineer, Taylor Riggs, our booker, and Michael Batnick, uh, our director of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.